You're listening to the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. Maybe you already knew that. In any case, thanks for being here. I'm Ross Romano, and today I'm pleased to welcome CJ Casciata to the show. CJ is a creative strategist and producer. He's worked with notable brands such as MGM Studios, Delta Airlines, Sesame Street, uh, the United Nations Foundation. He's also a media producer. He's founder of Ringbeller. Many of you may have heard of Ringbeller. It's an interactive media and technology product focused on social emotional learning for early childhood and K-12 learners. And he also speaks at schools and events of all sizes about a lot of the topics we'll talk about today from his book, Get Weird, Discover the Surprising Secret to Making a Difference. So CJ, welcome to the show. I am glad to be here with you, Ross. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a great way to start this off, there's a bit of the book where it's almost, I would say, one way to say it is you're almost challenging people to backwards map when they call something weird, mapping back to, okay, why did I think that? And you write about how the actual definition of the word, which we probably rarely revisit, is that it suggests the supernatural and which it's something that we don't understand, which of course can be a clear indicator of why so often it might be used as an insult or have a negative connotation around it because when we don't understand something, we get defensive and rebel against it. Also, that points to what it means about some of those intangible, hard to pin down, unique qualities of, okay, if we each have our individual weirdness, what does that really look like? So as you even have investigated, I'm sure you spent a lot of time thinking about just even that word and what it means and what you want it to mean when we're talking to students or anybody else about embracing their own weirdness. What how, what stands out to you and what do you really want to convey about that? I think the cool thing that's happening, I wrote this book maybe three years ago or so, and we're starting to see, and it's not just because I wrote this book, I think in the zeitgeist, you are having these moments where people are kind of latching on to a concept or an idea. And I think what's really interesting right now is that we are growing into our weirdness as a culture, we are growing to understand that weird is a good thing and different is a good thing. And it's something to be explored and curated and excavated out of people, not stuffed down in the corner somewhere. So I love that. I think the ongoing challenge will always be throughout history, not to turn weird into another version of same, not to coolify it, if you will. Mm-hmm. I'm just making up words here. Not to overbrand the word weird. So weirdness always goes through this cycle where something starts off weird, but then enough misfits and weirdos grab onto it that eventually the cool kids start looking over and go, hey, I want to be a part of that. And that's a really good thing. And that season lasts for a really long time. But then what starts to happen is all of that original weirdness becomes same and mundane and and becomes normal, honestly. And so there always needs to be permission for whatever truly goes against the grain, goes against pervasive permeating culture. We need to always stay curious with that. So what I would be asking as an educator, as a teacher right now is what's beyond the message of everybody's different. That's okay. Everybody's, that's going to be a message that's always necessary and always good. It's like, where, what about the kids who don't fit into mm-hmm. that particular message? The weirdos of today might look like the the very humdrum, ordinary, normal kids of yesterday. 
I guess there's something, a, a word that comes out is, is what if it's authentic. Even as you were talking about that, it was reminding me of a movie I just saw recently, 3,000 Years of Longing. And it's, it's this new George Miller movie. But the point is, there's a djinn, right? And the concept in this movie is that in order for him to grant your wish, it has to be your heart's honest desire. You can't just wish for whatever, some superficial hmm. thing. It has to be something that you truly deeply want. And in a way it makes me think about, okay, so has this weird concept would become almost artificial and replicable. Is it, are we wanting to be like this because we're trying to be like somebody else? Or are we trying to be the thing that we really want to be? And are we given the space and support to really become whatever we truly want to be? And exactly. sometimes that might be. I admire this person. I want to be like them. But if the reason why you want to be like them is so that you'd be accepted or fit in, then that's not what we want to encourage. We want to no, encourage it's a false start. Right? Yeah. And, and something that's also so interesting about this is it, there is that, that ineffability of what it is in each of us or that kind of in, inability to compartmentalize it. It's and the phrase that you use, you told a story in the book about a community production basically of the play Peter Pan <laughs> and a little girl who played Tinkerbell who didn't fit the stereotypical appearance of what you would think Tinkerbell would be if you've seen any of the movie representations and she used the phrase she dodged the gavel of who she can and can't be which I think is so important about this which is it's if you're really embracing your uniqueness it takes you away from being able to be compartmentalized into you can be this you can't be that and something even represented in that illustration of no, I can't. I'm going to be this. No, nobody else may have chosen me, but I'm choosing me. And what do you think basically about that concept of the things, right? That whether it's society in air quotes here or our parents <laughs> or our educators or whomever who have some idea of what we can do and what we can be that even when they say you can be anything you want to be, that that's just a phrase most of the time. And it may not apply to something like this, using this to break out of those preconceptions about who and what we might be able to become. Well, we're seeing a, a little bit of a battle happening right now. We have people who are looking at Ariel from The Little Mermaid and going, she can't be black. Or you have people who are looking at the new Lord of the Rings series and go, well, J.R.R. Tolkien never would have, this never was really in his design. And so there is a sort of essential battle for the way things used to be and a new reality where Together, we all understand that anybody can be anything that they want to be, especially in the realm of creative storytelling. And so we're in the middle of that right now. And I th think the challenge for people who automatically gravitate towards this message of, yeah, I'm weird, embrace the weirdos. Let's actually... Um, and I use, again, it's weird to, it's strange to use the word weird the way I'm using it because I use it as a positive thing. And it's even when I talk, it's been steeped for so many years in negativity. But when I say weird, uniquely, creatively different, suggesting the supernatural, as you mentioned, there is a, a little bit more burden on us to try and bring the others along. And we're only going to do that through continuing to share 
our own unique story with everyone unashamed. And two, by the way, that's a big thing. Like actually to be all the better at being whoever you are, which the good news is that comes really naturally because you are who you are and uh, you can't change that. And usually that just looks like a lot of introspection and work. The work really around that is being curious about yourself and being able to do some of that personal and uh, i think one of the the central tenets of the book as i would take it is that you're wanting to dispel as you call it the lie that it's better to fit in than to stick out and have individuals understand that and at the very least in childhood and beyond there maybe are certain designated ways in which it might be okay to stick out being excellent at this thing. But other than that, let's maybe regress back to the mean here and just go along to get along. And, but yet, as we know, as we become adults, we have a different perspective on it and understand, okay, as we're trying to make our way in this world, uh, professionally or otherwise, it is the uniqueness that we bring to the table that really enables us to have opportunities. It's the thing, whether it's your personal mission statement or your elevator pitch or the way that you would in one or two lines describe who you are and what you do in a way that would easily designate you as, oh, I get this person and they're standing out to me in a particular way. But the challenge is how do we get kids there? because the social pressures and anxieties of childhood are real <laughs> and the same ways that we may be attempting and even making it our goal to stand out as adults are something that, that we would have a lot of fear around as, as kids. And so it made me wonder about the opportunities there for adults in children's life and, and, and certainly among our listeners, the educators in their schools to find those opportunities to celebrate kids and make them feel special just for being who they are, not with respect to anything in particular, not with respect to, it doesn't have to be the way that they performed on any particular assignment or in anything, but just to take note of those things and just reaffirm why you notice that this is a special kid and the difference that it could make to them to have somebody notice that about them, no matter who they are, whether they would be classified as the popular, it doesn't really matter. But we know that a lot of kids are feel a lot of self-consciousness about things. And like what, I mean, do you see something there with opportunities to say, okay, how do we just make it part of our business to encourage kids to be who they are by affirming who they are? Yeah, I think it's a question of outcomes, right? Like we have to be really careful that we're not using the idea of weirdness as simply positioning, <laughs> brand positioning, strategic positioning. You know, kids are not businesses, but we're we, there's already enough platforms and technology out there that are trying to turn our kids into personal brands. And it's great to have a personal mission statement in life. It's great to know what you're uniquely good at, but that's not necessarily... You and I are communications guys, so we I absolutely use the weird the word all the time when talking to companies, organizations about how to position themselves, but we've got to be careful not to position kids. When I'm talking about what makes a kid or a human 
truly unique. It's really a question of dignity and of highest values. Mm. If we reoriented our classrooms and our schools around the outcome of providing spaces, I think our mutual friend Randy Ziegenfoy says spaces where everybody is seen, heard, and valued. Mm-hmm. That's that starts with acknowledging that there is a sense of dignity and unique worth in everybody that we come across. And it's getting harder and harder to do when things are moving more and more online, more and more digital towards the metaverse, towards TikTok, towards the sort of disembodiment between the physical self and that interaction we have with each other and the digital space. And so Again, this becomes a question of outcomes and, and values. What are we wanting our kids to walk away from a day, a month, a semester, a year, 12 years mm-hmm. in a classroom setting with? Do we want them to walk away with the personal mission statement that they can bring into a job interview? Great, maybe, but have we learned? And this is a question I don't quite know yet, but I'm starting to ask, have we learned that that isn't enough and it's really not producing the culture that we thought it might? Yeah, we're productive. We're productive as all hell, (laughs) but are we, are we a more benevolent and unified community? Do we know how to communicate with each other better than we used to? Are we able to start conversations and start debates and start conflicts with empathy, which by the way, is the root of weirdness, right? If we can acknowledge that somebody has a different story and a different makeup than we do, then all of a sudden we can start to shift our mindset and our perspective about where that person is coming from. These are the things that I hope my kids grow into adults learning and knowing. And more importantly, I hope that the people that they have to exist with and among are learning the same. I'm not hopeful that it's happening everywhere, but I think it's why we're having this conversation. Right. Yeah. And I would almost think of it as being in an environment where kids would confidently communicate who they really are and know that would be valued and appreciated versus having to come up with something (laughs) and just be like, who are you? What are you? Or I I noticed this really cool thing about you. And I just want to say it's really cool. And it's the, just rather than necessarily saying you have to be a certain way, it could be anything, but yeah, there's something, it, it is very challenging because there's institutional pressures, there's peer pressures, there's individual, just the pressures and anxieties we put on ourselves that of course are so magnified throughout our youth that not until we are older do we realize it was our own perception and it wasn't necessarily that anybody else was as concerned about what we were doing as we were and that kind of encouragement, but I feel like also in these educational settings, figuring out, okay, what are the ways, and we'll talk about the creativity and those specific aspects of it, but the ways in which 
it is more than these blanket statements that don't necessarily make it down to the individual level to impact that kid who really is wrestling with this and thinking about, okay. And, and, and so thinking back to designing education and its goals, of course, and you talk a lot about how kind of science and the arts are pitted against each other and the arts historically haven't received the same amount of support or respect and, but how these skills around creativity and, and empathy and emotional acumen, social emotional skills and beyond the four C's are so in demand or so important as we go on in our lives. So it's, it's thinking about how are we designing what our objectives are and how we're going to try to achieve them. And, and there's like this balance to be struck between the places I think that have rightfully been identified in education and particularly in higher education with its price tags and stuff around the need to ensure practicality, we're learning practical things toward particular outcomes and the points in which an overemphasis on practicality is overboard. And you had this line, you had a friend, Rob, that you mentioned in the book, and he said he shared some of his favorite lines from Don Quixote. And, and I just wanted to read this one because I thought it really, it stood out to me. When life itself seems lunatic, who knows where madness, madness lies? Perhaps to be too practical is madness. To surrender dreams, this may be madness. Too much sanity may be madness. The maddest of all, to see life as it is and not as it should be. I feel like this really could stand to educators to say, one, we don't really know if we're overconfident that we really know what the future holds or what these kids are going to want to do once they're out there, that may be a little more madness than thinking we know everything and we know exactly what's practical. And then two, the last part to see life as it is and not as it should be as there's a remission oriented people we are focused on equitable outcomes and opportunities. And we know that what is and what has historically been in society is not what should be. So really, don't we need to grapple with these questions? Absolutely. And it's like you have, uh, what's that that show that just won a bunch of Emmys right now? It's doing great. There's a reason why to the Abbott Elementary, mm -hmm. right? And it's a that's an entire cast full of Quixote type characters. And so the main character is very, very Don Quixote in nature, except that there is that when Cervantes wrote that, it was seeing like how foolish there was a dualistically saying, hey, how foolish it is to curve some of these old ideals. But we can we can believe that in a sense and then also take some of the great things about Don Quixote and go, oh, you'll understand some of those ideals are worth fighting for. And so it's a really interesting, that whole story is a really, you could pull that apart in so many directions because in some ways Don Quixote is your classic district administrator or the system or the federal, whatever you want to call it, state system that's steeped in, you no, know, this is the way we used to do things. And this is the way we always will do things. And this is the way you, it shows that paradox that I was talking about earlier, where weird becomes eventually normal when so many weirdos grab onto it and the cool kids come onto that that all of a sudden you have to have a new strain. It's all a cycle. And what I love about Don Quixote is he kind of embodies both ends of that spectrum. Like you need that idealistic hope that goes against the system. But if you notch it too far, it becomes just insanity. And again, we're fighting between those two different worlds right now. And, and yeah, one is going to have to win out over the other. And it, my bet is on uh, 
the teachers and the educators who are willing to play the long game of hope because you're starting to see glimmers of that sentiment starting to permeate the pop culture. And when it does, you know that things are taking shape and there's movement, right? There's a reason why Ted Lasso is so successful. There's a reason why Abbott Elementary is so successful. We've got to remember, push back the clock a couple of years and we were celebrating Breaking Bad. <laughs> right. It's a great right. show, by the way. But something's changing. There's a different temperature in the atmosphere. And so what I would say to the educators who are thinking idealistically about what could be fighting against some of these systems and choosing to live in the weird, live in the tension of differentiation and absurd uniqueness is that you're onto something, stick with it. You may not see it tomorrow, but other people are starting to catch on. And there's even, and sometimes it's even more in the micro, right? Where we, even with the, macro demands and standards and different things that that you can't change within an individual school or classroom maybe we need to dispense even still with the notion that there's only one way to get there right <laughs> to say yeah. that each of us may have a unique so as, just as we might say there's no one way for a child to be a success they can do all there's no necessarily one way to have students learn what they need to learn. There might be a lot of different ways to do that. And how does that play into teachers' unique skill sets and their, their autonomy to create those learning environments and to understand who their individual students are and how they might best learn that? And it doesn't mean it's easy because time is the most limited resource and there's so many benchmarks that you're trying to hit one after the other. And, but with that encouragement from administration to say, okay, we need to, we want to tap into what makes each of our educators the best at what they do. And we know where we need to be, but let, you know, let's figure out if there's different ways to get there. That's another one to me. It stands out as, as it should be, not as it is. Yeah. It's difficult to talk about weirdness in a system that's designed under the banner of standardization. Yeah. It's maybe standardization is the weirdest thing of all. Uh, so there was, there's another story that you wrote about in the book that also, you know, I think it's obviously a lesson because I believe you mentioned being six years old when it happened. You obviously retained it for all these years, but it was the story of a, an art project such as it was where you meant to assemble an apple, I believe. <laughs> and you've already mentioned earlier in the interview that your mom outlawed coloring books and said you have all the crayons and blank pages that you want. So clearly she had a creative tilt there and this particular project didn't exactly work out as you initially expected would you mind telling that story and then talking about what you learned through that experience because I, I have a couple of things that stood out but would love to hear it in your words sure this is the new york teachers union at its best i grew up <laughs> on long island new york and i had a really crabby kindergarten teacher and she gave us an assignment where we had to cut out all these parts of an apple and stick them together with that classic what was that the stick glue, the glue stick. Mm, right. And so she gave us this demonstration. And again, being the total on fire, lights went off in this lady a long time ago, Mrs. Klein, God save her. But she just, she had too many kids to look after over the years and just was not, it was <laughs> by the time I got to her, she was like, I just, I'm wanting to go home and watch Matlock. She must've been 
80 years old at the time or something. She was, gosh, I was like six. So she was probably like 50. And I just thought she was 80. But anyway, she took a, a thing that was supposed to be, one of the cutouts was supposed to be the pit of the apple. And she told us to color green and make it the leaf that's supposed to mm. go out on the stem. So I bring it home to my folks. And my mom and dad are like, that's a, they see the little seeds in the pit and are like, son, that's the pit. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's the, I'm trying to do what you guys told me to do and pay attention to my teacher and do what she says. And it's the stem, or it's supposed to be the stem and the leaf. They're like, trust me, it's the pit. And so I do it the way my parents said, because my parents Trump, Trump the teacher. And I think they even write a note to the teacher the next day when I bring it in. And she goes, oh my gosh, you're right. It's the stem. But I, I couldn't, I guess what I took from that story was I couldn't believe that even at six years old, my proclivity to follow whoever the authority figure was in in my life from nine to three o'clock, which was Mrs. Klein, the teacher, and how that conflicted with these other authority figures, which are my parents. So it just, it, I guess I wrote that story in that chapter to really talk about how quickly and early we learn um, to fit in and the potential consequences and the fear and anxiety that rise up. Again, I was like probably a more anxious kid than many, but the anxiety that that raises up in us from a very early age at the very idea of breaking the rules and bucking up against that system of standardization, even if we know that system of standardization is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it was when I was thinking about that dynamic of being caught in between, I, really, I know I'm supposed to listen to my teacher and I also know I'm supposed to listen to my parents. And right now I can't do both. Yeah. <laughs> I have to do one or the other, or in this case, you have to risk being wrong if I'm <laughs> going to do it. And some of the opportunities that are so available now, and in some ways, I think we made a lot of progress on this. And in some ways, we still have more progress to make around the collaboration and communication between educators and parents to say, okay, how do we actually make it something where when you have whatever it is, the projects, assignments, something maybe a little more creative than this particular assignment, but something to say, hey, we want to encourage, like, this is what the assignment is. And this is generally what we think is going to happen. But we do want to encourage you as parents to work with your child on it and come up with what they kind of taps into their creativity, right? And make it something where it's not, where that those figures are working in concert. They both have the same goal, which is for that child to succeed. And, but the parent is going to have a unique view into their own kid and what might spark their interest that could help the teacher to get the best out of that child. And of course, the teacher knows things the parent might not have a view into. And so it was, okay, what if this same assignment or an assignment that that was a little bit different than this, but it was the teacher sent it home with you and said, do this with your mom and come up with something that is your own twist on it, how much that might mean to that student to be able to almost reconcile the fact that these authority figures are both on the same team. And yet, not to push back on what you're saying, because I think that's a great, that's a great assignment. I think that the point of the Apple story was there, there was a right answer and there was a methodology to doing it, but doing it the right way was married to the risk of being lonely, of being mm -hmm. singled out, of being different. And sometimes our weirdness is actually the key to unlocking 
the correct path forward. And I just thought about the structure of the way kindergarten even worked. And again, you're right. It's been like, I don't know, 30 years since then way that classroom structure was architected. There was something in me that was deathly afraid to stand out. Even if my standing out was objectively the right thing to do because right. it was the right, it was the way it was designed. So it begs the question, how can we create environments where it's okay to be wrong and it's okay to be right, regardless of how many people are on each side of that equation? Yeah, that's art right there. That's God's work. That's why I'm not a teacher because I don't think I could do it. But I know that there are so many who get up every morning and sort of beat against the drum of standardization and to their own rhythm. And, and I would just encourage them to keep on doing that. Even if that sound is droning in your ear and it's almost so loud, but keep dancing to your own rhythm. Keep, keep beating your own because that's what we need. We're mimetic by nature, right? And it's like, we need those models as kids to see the kind of world that we all imagine and future that we all dream of. Right. Yeah. And so much of it, I think would come back to that question of purpose and what is the reason why it's important to be right and what are you attempting to be right about? And uh, and you talk about the misfits start movements, right? That if Mm -hmm. it's rare, it's not really going to be who's conventionally fitting in who's likely to start a new movement because they may not be pushing the boundaries in any particular direction at that time. So again, I'm thinking about this through the terms of the education world and misfits in a way. And you also write about sticking out by sticking up for others and thinking about what those misfits would be. And it would be a lot of the people who I think would be pushing back against the status quo of the way things are, or just put, or just refusing to be pessimistic about what we can achieve and whether it comes to achieving greater equity and opportunities and access for all students, or really fixing some of the shortcomings that have historically existed within our system, our schools, and just continuing to persevere on that and push toward that and say, it may be creativity in a different way, but there is that kind of thing inside of somebody. I could definitely say, I don't know whether they would use the word weird or some other adjective to say, man, that person is just really, every time I talk to them, they are really on this topic and they just don't budge from it. And, and I don't know if I have that sense of optimism, right? But I feel like there is something about that's like embracing that purpose to say, look, you know, A lot of people right now may think I'm wrong. They may think this is impossible. It can't be done. It's not achievable. It's hard. It's whatever. And yet I think it's important to keep trying. And I'm sure there are so many of our listeners who can relate to that, who are doing that in their classrooms, their schools or districts, their communities, and they are battling against something that the broader narrative would say, how much difference can you really make? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And one question that I had for you (laughs) is you talked, you mentioned your three of your heroes being Walt Disney, Jim Henson, and Mr. Rogers. And 
I'm going to take the first two out of this because I think it's probably clear why it's hard to be like them. <laughs> but <laughs> why is it so hard to be like Mr. Rogers? And I think he's been, I don't know, over the past handful of years, whether it's because there was a couple of films made or because it's very easy, SCL, it's easy to tout him. Yeah, he's been more in the in in pop culture and just in the discourse than he probably had been in a while. And but are, are most people actually like really living maybe by um, the the kind of courageousness of the principles, right? And so I would ask you, why is it so hard to do? It's hard to be Mister Rogers because Mister Rogers decided not to really automate anything, and we live in a time in history where we can automate just about anything. And I remember every time the trolley would come by, the guy would stick his hand off camera and press the button right. for the trolley to come. You don't have, you don't have a grip, a guy right now backstage to do this, to do this camera a trick for you. Nope. I'm going to just reach my hand off, off stage and do that. I don't think he automated conversations with people off camera too, from everything I know about him. He really took the time to connect with every single one of the young fans that he was trying to influence. He also didn't start really that show until he was about 35, 36 years old. So there was a lot of behind the scenes research and self-education that went into what he eventually developed. He didn't phone anything in. He didn't scale past what he could do on his own. That didn't mean he did everything singularly, right? He had a crew, he had family and people working with him, but he intentionally kept it homemade and kept it handmade. And that's a very difficult choice to make, especially since I'm sure more than one time, there was a lot of opportunity and a lot of money on the table to do something bigger, better, sexier. So I think it's hard to be like Mr. Rogers because in a way there's a certain sort of contemplative monkish ascetic lifestyle that comes with what he decided to do he said it when he said it was his ministry he saw and he was a guy who was ordained as a as a priest before before going into media media is my ministry not everybody goes in the priesthood for obvious reasons right yeah yeah and it's it requires that touch and it is a good thing for i guess it's all to, to think about as what's the the greatest impact we can make within our relative sphere of influence and as we maybe pursue things that we think can quote unquote scale that are we getting further and further away from being able to touch where we can make that impact which is i think an encouraging sign to everybody in whatever role they're in to say okay i have somebody in front of me students educators whoever whatever i'm doing and i can make a big difference for them because i'm here because it's me and because there's not going to be any dilution of quality. Awesome. So as we're wrapping up to the end here, I did have one other thing that was stood out. And I, speaking of being right or wrong, I have no idea what the right answer is to this. So maybe we'll figure it out together. But I was, again, thinking about, okay, we talk about all these things and 
Of course, there are real challenges to saying, okay, yes, there's a lot of things we'd like to overhaul in how we're educating students and we'd like to do a better job of teaching soft skills. And sometimes we do or don't feel like we have a great program for being able to do that. We feel like it's in competition with all these other demands. But you mentioned, and I don't know what year this, I think it must have been several years ago, but still not that far in the past when Google did an employee survey and uh, or an employee inventory, at least among kind of the skills and talents of their employees. And they found that the attributes of empathy, creativity, and emotional acumen were among the top qualities. But the thing that stood out to me was you wrote, they were shocked to find that these attributes were among the top qualities, <laughs> which indicated one, it wasn't what they were looking for when they hired these people and they weren't it wasn't something they had really thought about before. It just never probably entered their mind because they were thinking about engineering skills and coding and whatever. And I think now there's been some shift in that. And I've seen a lot recently where it's like companies, the top qualities companies are looking for are collaboration and this and that, which again, like, I don't necessarily know how companies are always going to be able to evaluate that, but I guess now they're recognized it as important, but that shows like, Hey, even though for those people that got into these roles, that might not be what got them there. That's what was helping them to succeed. And, but it was happening perhaps by chance in a sense, right? If it's not the thing that was being looked for and it's not what they were touting, then they just so happen to maybe have these skills, which traces back to, was it prioritized and that it was intentionally taught and especially intentionally taught to everybody and equitably and saying, look, these are the critical success skills. So if we are not teaching these to everybody, then it means we are falling short on preparing everybody for success. But you know, how, how do we really do that? Cause we obviously can't just get rid of STEM and yet we also need to make room for these other things. It's not a dualistic conversation. It, it, it's not STEM or STEAM, it's <laughs> That's what it is. And I know, and that doesn't sound good, but it's what it is. It's it, when you're a coder, you're literally, this isn't like a woo woo sort of statement here. It's like you're literally doing the same thing as somebody who's really good at soft skills or a poet. And you and I talk about poetry and writing or a writer. It's, you, you are making sense out of data. You are organizing information so that it's eloquent, so that it flows and that can be designed into something that is useful and innovative and insightful. So mm -hmm. it's not coder over here, poet and HR representative over here. It's realizing that these are all the same skills and there's just different expressions of how we use them. That it's not this dualistic arts and humanities versus science and mathematics. It's all the same, all these same human attributes. That's a very Western and new way of educating people. We need to go mm -hmm. back to the Greek way, the triangulization of art, or excuse me, of truth, beauty, and goodness. This is not stuff that we don't have, we don't have on or the ability to go back in history and see what worked. We, I think probably our, our greatest blind spot as a modern technologically advanced western society is thinking that we have arrived at everything and that we can't learn from any other cultures especially ones throughout history and so to have a little bit more humility in where we are as a culture and being able to go the way we're siloing and divvying up these 
categories, whether it's in school or even in the workforce. Let's look at the precedent for that. When did that, when did that even begin? What came before that? Um, what's what's broken in that line of thinking? What's good in that line of thinking? To practice a, a spirit of, of relentless curiosity, I think, is what will help us uncover those weird insights that just might make our our world and our culture genuinely more interesting, better, and holistic place to live in. Yes, I agree. Awesome. So CJ, so our listeners, where can they learn more about you? Can they invite you out to talk to their students? What, where can they go after this? Yes and yes. You can go to ringbeller.com. That's our kids media project. We do social emotional videos for K through five. I also have, you can buy the book, Get Weird. You go to getweirdbook.com and then you can learn a little bit about the speaking stuff that I do and the consulting stuff I do around the book, ringbeller.com and getweirdbook.com. So everybody check that out. It's a, I don't know if it's a weird book or not. It's a good book. (laughs) (laughs) But we'll put the information in the show notes about Get Weird and where you can find it. And also make sure to subscribe to The Authority for more in-depth author interviews. We have a lot more great shows coming up. And visit bpodcast.network to learn about all of our other shows.